This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Connie Kasser, your host for today's show, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Ruth Gamble about her book, Reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism, The Third Karmapa and the Invention of a Tradition, published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Gamble is currently the David Myers Research Fellow in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Ruth, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you going? Great. Thanks for thanks for being here. I'd like to start off as we usually do in our new books podcast, just by asking you to talk a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, where are you from? What what's your education background, and how did you come to study the things that you study? I have what you'd call a non-linear background story. I think is the best way to put it. I grew up in the north of Australia, and I started my first job was as a journalist. I studied journalism. And then I got a job working for American television, actually, in Japan at the Olympics and uh, decided I liked snowboarding better than journalism. And then I went (laughs) snowboarding and then I got bored of snowboarding and thought I'd go and check out the Himalayas because, you know, snow. Uh, And when I was there, I I got interested in uh, uh, Tibetan language as well as uh, interested in Tibetan Buddhism. And I did an interpreter's program uh, in Dharamsala, uh, learned Tibetan and then moved back to Australia and worked as an interpreter uh, for a Tibetan Geshe. And then while I was doing that, I did another degree in Asian studies. And uh, then I went to graduate school uh, and completed a PhD at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> it's not normal. <laughs> So TV to snowboarding to yeah. the, Him- the Himalayas to Tibetan stuff, and then you got it. You got a few degrees. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I have like a yeah. It's a nonlinear story, and I have a diverse background to bring to to the research that I do. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I'm curious. Um, how did this book, Reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism, come about? Where did this come from? It's a result of my PhD research, um, but there's kind of a interesting story to that as well. I had started off thinking that I was going to write a thesis on Milarepa, uh, Milarepa's life story and his poem, and then I found someone else had already done that, so I had a few gins. Uh, and then gin and tonics and then decided, <laughs> tried to think of something else to do. And the next day, someone handed me a, a disc with uh, Ranjun Doji's Sungbum on it. And I wow. thought, oh, maybe he has songs. 
Um, so I went through and and started found a, a massive collection of um, his uh, good or his uh, songs of experience, and um, I started working on those songs. And then in the process of trying to figure out where the songs fitted into the world, um, I realized that there was two autobiographies uh, in the collected works as well. Um, so then I started. Uh, investigating them, and they were really fascinating. So I found that the combination of the songs, which are really um, extemporaneous, and he uh, tells you exactly how he's feeling, can, uh, as well as this kind of constructed narrative of himself together, um, gave me a really interesting insight into his world, into the third Kamapa's world. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So and and so this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, the idea of how you become a reincarnate and the and the, uh, the the construction of that identity and therefore that tradition because he was the first third if that makes sense um, was a was a dominant theme or a predominant theme in all of his writing. Yeah. Okay. So so so, so this kind of this came out of your um, PhD thesis and it really kind of originated in your interest in looking at. Rangjung Dorje's writings and then kind of expanded beyond that to look at the the broader kind of context. Yeah, the broader context for so the how his writing was situated, particularly first his his songs or his poems and then his life story and then yeah, how that was situated, how 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 that reflected his identity and the historical context in which they were written. Yeah. Mhm. So for folks who haven't read the book, um, which I, I, I loved this book. I <laughs> really loved books. this book. So <laughs> I, I hope that everybody listening will, will go and buy this book and read it. Cause I just, I loved this book. I really did. Um, but, um, for folks who don't know about Rangjung Dorje, um, could you just explain a bit about who he was and why he's so important? So, um, so Rangjung Dorje was the third Kamapa. And he lived in the late 13th, early 14th century. Uh, and he was born um, really poor. His family had no uh, resources, not even any land. And he was recognized as the reincarnation of the second Kamapa by uh, the Siddha, the person who was renowned as the Siddha or Gempa, uh, who took him under his wing. Um, and then there was a war and he moved to Tsurpu uh, Monastery, the home of the second Kamapa. And even though the people at Tsurpu weren't really happy about it, um, he stayed there for quite a while. And gradually through his lifetime, through his his um, writing and his teaching and his traveling and his, I guess, personal charisma, he slowly became recognized as uh, the recognized and accepted as the in reincarnation of the second Kamapa. And so what you have with Ranjan Dorji is he's the first child to be recognized as a reincarnate uh, and and he's the first third in a row, if that makes sense. So there had been people before him, lots of, well, lots, relative term, uh, quite a few people before him who said that they were the, reincarnation or emanation or manifestation of another being but most of the time this is this had only happened once right so they'd say i'm an a manifestation of this person i'm an incarnation of that person but there, there hadn't been a line and you kind of need three in a line for it to become a line so his 
uh, recognition as a child was the first time you had like a line of reincarnates in Tibetan Buddhism. And then so he has no background, no family, and his whole identity is to be a reincarnation. So most of his writing or a lot of his writing reflects how he's establishing and coming to understand and promoting that identity. Um, yeah, and, and then he becomes involved in, in politics and things, right, later in his he, life. He becomes involved in politics. I think he's actually born involved in politics, the poor guy. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, he's, he, I was going to say he's also a really prolific writer, really, you know, smart person who uh, keeps writing works of philosophy and, and works of, about medicine. He's, a, he's like something of a polymath. Um, and that helps to consolidate his reputation as well. And he happens to live this, uh, I don't know, you wouldn't say rags to riches, but maybe like, because um, <laughs> um, he's, he's, you know, supposed to be wearing rags all the time as a monk, but, uh, but th- that from obscurity to prominence, he lives this obscure to, obscure to prominent life uh, during the, the last stage of the Mongol Empire, and towards the end of his life, he's invited to the Mongol court, where he becomes uh, the last emperor of the Mongol emperor uh, of the Mongol Empire, Dogen Timur's um, primary guru or primary teacher. So he goes mm-hmm. from being an, a, a a kid from a vagrant family on the edges of the Mongol Empire in southern Tibet to the fabled city he dies in the fabled city of Xanadu or Shangdu in in Mongolia what is now in Mongolia yeah and the whole period is there's politics 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 that he has to deal with I mean his first trip to Serpu basically seems to come about because there's a war on where he grew up between two um, sets of Mongol troops and he and he basically goes there as a refugee yeah so politics the whole way through (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing story. And the, the second um, the second half of your book really kind of um, draws a lot on on these um, autobiographical writings and songs and, and um, outlines Rangjun Dorje's life. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, the, the first half of your book focuses a little bit more on the historical context of Rangjun Dorje and explains more about how the Buddhist theory of rebirth gave way to the Tibetan tulku tradition, um, which mm-hmm. is uniquely Tibetan and which you call in your book an invented tradition. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit by what you mean when you say that the tulku tradition is an invented tradition. Well, it's taking this idea from uh, Hobsworth in, uh, in the um, English literature t- tradition who basically says that all traditions are invented. Uh, you know, they're not organic. Uh, they don't grow up naturally. They kind of, people invest in them uh, and create them as they go along. And I think that this is what happens with the, with traditions is that we lose the invention and accept them as being a normal part of life. And what I was looking at in this book is how the idea of a reincarnation tradition and a reincarnation institutions and the... Um, uh, the the uh, belief structures associated with them are often placed back onto 
the earlier tradition, the earlier parts of the tradition when it was being invented when they weren't there at the time. So it wasn't a given that Ranjan Dorji would be recognised as a Kamapa. It wasn't a given uh, that uh, he would, when the, 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 the tradition would continue, it was the idea of it being continuous and that it would keep going was something of an invention of his writing and his um, his uh, perception of the world. Uh, so, uh, well, his understanding of himself more than uh, the, just the world. So his his uh, this, there was kind of a feedback loop between how he understood himself, how the world saw him, and that created a sense that the that the Kamapas would be there. And then so after he dies, um, it seemed natural for people to go and, and find his his rebirth. So it's kind of invented it through, this, through the course of his life. Okay. So, yeah, I like this idea of this kind of feedback loop. Um, I'm wondering, could you give, a, I don't know, an example or something of, of some way that this feedback loop kind of works? Like how did Rangjung Dorje... Um, work to create this kind of persona where people would go and look for his reincarnation after he died. So I guess in some ways that the, the, the whole of the first section of the book is about feedback loops. Um, mm. So I've got this idea of feedback loops through stories, like he tells a story. This, and, the, and the quote that I had in the front of the book, which I really loved, was he has this thing where he says, the time when I was young is like a dream, but I will speak a little of the parts that are clear because it's like it was someone else's story, and if I tell it, it will make it another person's story. So yeah. he's making—he's like inventing him. He's—it's very meta for the 13th century or the 14th century. <laughs> he's yeah. like—he's acknowledging his own invention um, in the telling of his story. So it's as if he tells his story, then that becomes his identity, and that identity is the basis on which he tells the story. So, mm-hmm. so the so there's a feedback loop there, an identity. Um, a narrative feedback loop. I am my story and my story is how I understand myself, right? Mm-hmm. But then I also think that works um, with uh, his identity in, in lineages. I am part of this lineage and then the lineage defines me, right? So that, that's another one. And also through communities, like lineages aren't just, uh, often when people describe things, they hollow out um, the the idea of a lineage to the the people who are like the lineage holders or the centers of it. But there's actually a lot of community support that needs to go into the preservation of any tradition. And so there's there's like a relational um, loop between the Kamapas and those that support them over the years as well. And the other thing that I'm really, really interested in is how that is in place. Um, so how the idea of a... Um, the idea of the Kamapas, the idea of reincarnation lineage is very much a product of a place as well as a time. And so the the Kamapas, the third Kamapa, Ranjan Dorje, spends a lot of time or a lot invests a lot of ink. Even he says that I'm using a lot of ink um, to uh, to emplace the Kamapas in in situations like the in Serpul Monastery and their other uh, and sacred sites and uh, retreat centers and he pr- sets up this situation whereby his presence in these places sacralizes them and their sacrality sacralizes him if that makes sense so he makes them sacred by being there and they make him sacred through that through their sacredness it becomes 
uh, a fee, a fee, another feedback loop. So they're happening all over the place. It's, it's all kind of relational. Uh, um, the, the, the idea of being a tuku is a very much, or, or a reincarnate, is very much a, a, a relational um, identity and a, a um, how do I put it? It's, it's, a, it's a, 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 something that you work at, but something that people become uh, aware of uh, and then they help uh, solidify that identity as well. I think there was one about the, um, I'm trying to, now I'm trying to find the quote, but there was one he actually says, he, may, he does the same kind of meta-analysis of uh, trans, literature that transforms landscapes into sacred sites as he does about himself. And he says something like, I can praise this site and the praise makes it sacred and then the sacred makes the praise sacred and it goes around yeah. in circles. Yeah. So. Yeah, these, these feedback loops are really interesting thinking about, um, you know, He's, he's writing kind of intentionally and saying, okay, this is who I am. And then, you know, that kind of reinforces the, the idea of who he is and, um, you know, these feedback loops with communities. And then I think the, the stuff that you're doing with space is really interesting too. I mean, you, as you just mentioned, you know, you're focusing not just on time and the idea of, you know, reincarnation lineages, but you're also talking about space and and not just physical space but also sacred space yeah um and there's yeah. this yeah and and i think thinking of it in terms of a feedback loop is really um really interesting i'm just i'm curious i mean you've, you've already said a little bit but i'm wondering if you could expand more on this idea of space and how did that become so important in this project i just before i do that i found the quote Um, Okay, great. Uh, This will then become a site where reciprocal praise is performed between the sacred site itself and the actors who praise it repeatedly. For wherever there is praise, there is repetitive reprocity. Wherever there is praise, it is repeated. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I liked about him so much. He seems so... (laughs) I think that Tenkamaf would have made a really good marketer. Or, um, <laughs> like, it worked really well in advertising, you know, or, I mean, hopefully for, you know, good causes like, you know, the environment or whatever. But it, it's a, <laughs> he's really kind of aware of this um, personal creation and the way that words can be used to uh, create identities and um, constructions of how people understand things uh, in his own writing. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I find it fascinating. But, um, yes, yeah, uh, the... Uh, this, the idea of space was and pri- the, the main reason uh, that I became interested in it was it was such a theme in the song, mm. in, the, in his collection of songs, or good, these um, spontaneous songs that were part of, that are uh, really dom- predominant in the um, Gamagagi, but, you know, a lot of yogi traditions in Tibet. And mm. uh, that, because they're created in a situation, usually a, a kind of a, a tantric ritual or feast, they reflect a lot on what where they're being created. So they describe where he is. Um, they uh, use the environment as kind of metaphors for uh, trying to get to higher truth or whatever it is. They're a, a really uh, predominant theme 
And um, it just, it struck me when I was reading them that, that in some ways that the poems are like the descriptors and the spatial aspect of his story. So the idea of space, I got the idea of focusing on the space and the environment uh, in which he was operating by the songs, the songs, his songs of experience, which are part of the uh, yogi traditions of Tibet, that the, the yogis would sing songs, usually extemporaneously, and uh, and because they were singing them spontaneously in, in an environment, they would usually use that environment as metaphors or reflect on it when they were singing. So the idea of the the environment and the place he's in becomes a, a dominant theme throughout all of his songs. And so that made me think about uh, how we uh, understand space in history because we don't usually, we tend to have more about this happened and this happened and this happened rather than the space in which it happened. And it, it struck me that the songs told us about space and the, the uh, life stories and Namta they focus on time. So they say, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And they only have like a really brief descriptions of the environment. So he'd say, I went to uh, Lhasa and then this and this and this and this and this happened. You don't get a description of Lhasa in, in most Tibetan biography. Um, but the songs, on the other hand, have these big descriptions of place. And, and I was thinking that the, one of the most popular of uh, these uh, biography tradition, Milarepa's songs, they actually have both. They, the, the narrative is interrupted by songs where he reflects on where he is. Uh, so you get this time, space, time, space, uh, flicking between the two throughout that narrative. And so what I had in the text that I was working with was, well, in Rangshan Dorji's text, was all space in the song and then all <laughs> temporality in the, in the uh, life stories. And so the, the distinction between the two of them was really stark, whereas it may not have been if they'd been blended together. Okay. Yeah. So so you were kind of blending things together, almost creating a biography of um, Rangjung Dorje in a way similar to what you what you see in, in Milarepa's um I don't think uh, I've writings. done that yet. I'm going to do that. Because <laughs> um, uh, this is much more kind of analyzing those texts, but I think that's something sure. that needs to be done. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering about the hubris of, you know, <laughs> I'm writing your book, your autobiography. You know what I mean? Well, sure, but, um, sure. But, it's, but the but in the analysis, it was I was I was working between the two to try and get a picture of of his the world that he inhabited. Sure, sure. And and this, I mean, I think focusing on time and space together, it makes for a much more um, rich sort of story and, and um, rich presentation of Rangjung Dorje's life. And you're able to kind of get, as a reader, you're able to get a better understanding and a deeper understanding of not just what was happening, but what was happening and, and where. Yeah, I think maybe this comes from snowboarding, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> before I was a snowboarder, I was a skateboarder, right? And you have this thing of everywhere you walk, you're trying to, you're seeing different paths to take and um, you know, right. You have like, to find your line, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you're always looking at the environment, trying to see paths down it and how you can get around it. And, um, and, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I'm too kind of broken to keep, well, not snowboarding. I'm not broken enough to stop snowboarding. It, <laughs> it means that you have this kind of spatial awareness that I think came through in the, um, reading the literature. I was trying to, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how he's getting around places and everything. Um, uh, almost instinctively, as opposed to um, 
know, just having this idea of this happened there and this happened and there. I think I'm always kind of asking where things happened as well as when and how. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so see your your whole path, your whole path to becoming a scholar. It's all it's all connected. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's connected. And that idea, if you start doing path metaphors, it never ends. There's always yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm curious, um, you know, because the the Tulku tradition, um, which you know arose in Tibetan Buddhism after. Uh, Rongjing Dorje, um, you know, this, this idea of reincarnation kind of developed into the Tulku tradition. Um, but because that's so deeply ingrained in contemporary Tibetan Buddhism, mm. I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. Um, I mean, I could imagine that some of the claims that you're making in this book about it being an invented tradition and about Rongjing Dorje being intentional in writing his autobiographies in this way, um, like was that was that controversial in any way? Have you received any kind of pushback from you know from Tibetan people against some of the claims that you're making in this book? Not yet, <laughs> um, but, but, but I don't actually know if I am contradicting the it, well. I'm con- I'm contradicting the kind of shortened narrative, right? So so what I see happening through the retellings of Ranjan Dorji's story is this kind of short form of his, his, his and the other Kamapas' lives so that they're reduced into being kind of photocopies of each other. And that always struck me about when they have the Tanka lineages up on the wall. Mm. Um, so they have like one and the next and the next and the next and the, and the actual individual lived experience is kind of a bit lost. And it always struck, and it strikes me, you know, not just from a historian's perspective, but as someone who's interested in how beings lived, that there's something very re- reductive about that. Uh, that you, what's the point of people, even if you're looking at it from a Buddhist perspective, what's the point of being an embodied person who shows, who, even if you like, if you take this perspective that he had insights or realizations or whatever, the idea to that he. He came down as an embodied being. I mean, that's what his story says. He took life as a he. He chose to be born uh, in order to help. So therefore, that lived experience is supposed to be a demonstration to other people on how to live. So to ignore that, ignore the kind of uh, effort and the uh, the way that he used the opportunities he had in order to you know negotiate. Uh, through a, a, a complicated situation with trying to keep the best, the intention to help all beings in his head, I think getting rid of that is actually more insulting. You know, reducing that to mm. a, a single image is actually more insulting than paying respect to it or, or um, uh, engaging with uh, that lifetime in a more in-depth way. But, I mean, that, yeah, that personally, I think it's, kind of to dismiss it as being just part of a tradition or uh, another step as opposed to thinking about the the complicated choices and the moral judgments and the sacrifices that had to be made by embodied beings uh, mm-hmm. is more, in, to me it seems more respectful than just putting the people in a line and reducing them to a photocopy. Well, that makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, so I've got. So, a, I haven't been criticized yet, but I've got a reply for when it happens. <laughs> well, that's good. It's good to be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, th- thinking about the the past and and um, just thinking, I don't know about the the Tulku tradition more broadly, and, right. and looking toward the the future, um, and. You know, I don't know, just thinking about contemporary developments, um, mm-hmm. things we're hearing in the news about certain Buddhist teachers, including okay. um, Tibetan teachers who are recognized as tulkus, right, who have been accused of um, using their status to abuse or, or manipulate their students. Um, you know, given, given all of this, given the current environment around this, do you think that the tulku tradition can survive? I think it will. Um, I think the question is more like whether it should in its current form. Mm. Um, and, I mean, there's things to it. I mean, that's what I find interesting about this story of Zhang Zhenzhuoji. Another thing about I found in his writing was that he's doing something quite radical, right? He's a low-born, landless, not deserving of an education in a worldly sense person who mm-hmm. – um, has this idea that through this kind of gift of being recognized and the kindness that his teachers showed him, that he has, has a, a whole world opens up to him that would never have opened up uh, to anyone else in his situation. So in some ways, at that stage early on, it was a very uh, egal- kind of egalitarian. I keep having this idea in my head that Ranjan Dorji may have had a sister who was really good at piano playing, right? But she was <laughs> never, the, circuit, the causes and conditions were never there for her to have the same life as him, right? Mm. So um, that's kind of like an alternative history. <laughs> but for him, it, this idea of being recognized and uh, having gave him access to opportunities and, um, you know, spiritual opportunities as well as, as travel opportunities, educational opportunities that he would never have had. So in some ways at that stage it was shaking up society. It was a, a radical transformation of, for at least for him, a radical transformation of how um, power structures were working at that point, right? And since mm-hmm. then it was, it, it was also an affront to embedded uh, hierarchies in families because uh, the tulku is a, a familyless lineage, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it was an affront to embedded power structures of his time, and I don't see that. I don't see that happening now. I see uh, a, a certain sense of entitlement, right? So that is, uh, I mean, well, not a certain sense of entitlement. You're seeing some extreme entitlement, and even the. I actually think that the tulku system is even really kind of harmful to the good guys in a way you know the hmm. ones that, that kind of are recognized as children and um are trying to do the right thing like i remember i used to work as an interpreter uh, before well while i was at graduate school and, and doing it as well and i remember one ring uh, saying to me um he'd had to go and deal with someone who was being really dodgy you say dodgy in america uh, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Um, his, and, and he was saying, I have to go and contain this situation because he does one thing negative, it reflects on all of us. Mm. Right? So, so it's, it's like a communal 
uh, reputational thing as well as individually. And and I remember thinking that he, he was trying to do the right thing, but this whole system was imprisoning uh, in, in him as well. And, and it's kind of, it's a strange situation because on the one hand you get all of this, it gives you privilege. And for some people that becomes like a burden of responsibility and for other people, which is which is not easy. And on the other hand, for other people, it seems to become a, a license to be uh, obnoxious, at least, uh, uh, if not abusive. So mm-hmm. I think in both ways, it's it's a burden. And I, and I even heard a story once someone told me, I can't say who, but someone told me that they're, they had been, the, the local monks had come and said that they were a tulku. And their father had said, no, you're child thieves. <laughs> you're not taking my son. And um, <laughs> go away. And, and I was like, wow, they said that to the monastery. And, and he said, yeah, because there was this idea that even if you have special qualities, that being in that situation isn't necessarily the best way for them to come to the fore. Hmm. Um, hmm. And, which I just found fascinating. And that kind of speaks to some of something else about it and I'm ranting on here apologies is that no it's all right as an, an interpreter uh, I think some of what we're seeing in these abusive situations is a misreading of how the Tukul system worked within Tibet right so there was a lot more restrictions on their behavior than there is in the west and in some ways, mm-hmm. that actually remind me of like drunk Australians in Bali, or I'm guessing drunk Americans in Mexico. <laughs> in, in, yeah. in that there's, uh, they've gone into a situation where their like power and wealth is, and status enables them to do things, but there's not the social restrictions on that behaviour. Right. So if mm. you do this in Tibet, someone would lock you up. Right, and 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 you wouldn't have access to the same people um, that you would uh, in these situations. You know, it's a. Um, I, I, I gave a talk once because I had this strange situation. I've interpreted for about seven different tukus and lamas and geshis and so on, and six of them gave me instructions on how to deal with sleazy teachers. <laughs> wow. Right? Yeah, six wow. And the other one was just so kind of otherworldly that it was, you know, he, he wasn't really on our plane. Um, <laughs> it wasn't something that we invested in. But, it, but all of them were saying, you know, in Tibet, if you're, you wouldn't be in a vulnerable situation like you are as, a, as an interpreter, um, you would have your family, you would have lots of protection, um, the relationships between people are negotiated much more. Um, but you're very isolated, so uh, you need to. And they gave me like I can't remember them off the top of my head, but they told me sutras to quote and lines to use if someone said um, that you know that they're awakened and we should have tantric sex. And I was supposed to say, well, you may be awakened, but I know I'm not. Um, wow! <laughs> so wow. I'm breaking my vows, and <laughs> so there was this whole um, yeah. They, there was they 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 all told me stories that I could tell to protect myself. And, and so I was thinking about it is, is what we're dealing with here is uh, as the Tukul tradition developed, there was lots of corruption, there was wars, there was all sorts of things went on, but there was also social structures that developed in order to contain that privilege. And mm-hmm. what we're dealing with is situations where that privilege isn't contained. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's as, as Tibetan Buddhism is expanding outside of Tibet, it's yeah. encountering these wildly different social structures and situations. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, and, and, and for the people that don't know how to negotiate that, that don't have any background in it, that don't have any like family networks of, you know, um, I don't know, some thuggish uncle that's just not going to put up with that. Then <laughs> there's, there's a, it's, it's a, you're in a very vulnerable situation. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, uh, and I don't know. Is it? It's also really. There's a. I'm not. I'm not saying this is just me who's looked at this tradition. I'm also taking a lot of these cues from people who've lived it. Like the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama says, there are too many tuku. They just. They're like you know, um, weeds. They're growing up everywhere. How, that's probably not a bad, <laughs> good analogy. There's, they're spreading everywhere. There's so many. And uh, there were, traditionally there was much less resources to support that level of tukuness, for want of a better word. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that's one issue. And the other issue is that it's a very different world, and it means that you know, keeping people in a situation where their life choices are decided at age three is very intensely problematic. And and then they also, you know, there's all things about them being like not just as abusers, but as abused and things as well. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very different from what I'm looking at historically. What I looked at historically, it's a very different. Situation. Yeah, it's a very different situation than the situation that that Rongjun Dorje grew yeah. up in. Yeah, and it, yeah, and, and at that stage, I, I mean, it wasn't completely radical, but it was it was a break. It was a development that uh, that loosens society as opposed to um tightening patriarchy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it was thinking about authority in a in a totally radical way yeah yeah and and there was also these weird parallel authorities like the thing that strikes me about looking um i've been working on a writing a an article about the history of all the commanders and the thing that i looked at with all of the um histories is that they didn't actually really take over control of Tsopu until after the war with the Fifth Dalai Lama and the Uun-Sang War in the um, 1600s. Oh, okay. So until that point, they, they were kind of associated with Tsopu but moving around and um, there, there was a – the second Kamapa's family was still in charge, basically. So there was a – it was like an, a parallel authority to worldly – to – uh, familial authority mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. so, so it, it creates like a, a break in power structures as opposed to or alternative power structures as opposed to enforcing power structures that can that can then be abused so so one last question for you just because we're we're almost out of time um what are you working on now what's what's next for you um well <laughs> um so uh I I found a poem in the third Kamapa's work which was about a famine and he describes a famine that was so intense um that people that there was cannibalism and blames the famine on a the uh, troops that have come in and and destroyed uh, the soil and this really struck me. I was like, that's insane. Wow. Yeah, yeah, really intense, <laughs> really um, descriptive and uh, very material. And that's led me off on this whole other thing about looking at the materiality of the history as well as the space. So 
uh, I've been uh, transforming myself into an environmental historian um, after being inspired by Zhang Junduji. And um, uh, I'm currently writing a environmental history of the Yalun Sampo River. Okay. Um, and looking at the impacts that humans have had on it and uh, its a role in shaping uh, the human communities in Tibet. And I'm actually using his poems and descriptions as well as other people's um, poems and descriptions of the river and uh, everything from Dunhuan documents to pollen samples um, to uh, tracking dam, the, the dams on the river and so on. So like a long history of the Yalong Sampo from when it was uh, formed by the two continents smashing into each other up until today when it's being dammed. That's my current project. Wow. So like a, like a biography of, of the river. Yeah. Bi- yeah. Literally, literally a biography of the river, like how, how it's graphing its biology. Yeah. Wow. That's great. <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> so, so it's, yeah. And, and some of that is also how people uh, understand the river, how they, what they believe about the river, how they conceptualize it and how uh, its presence help uh, is used as a metaphor in, uh, in religious writing and, and um, spiritual understanding and that sort of thing too. So yeah, wow. that's my current project. It's a bit of a departure, but there's a, I went from snowboarding to being a Tibetan interpreter. So, <laughs> so maybe this is a little more closely related, but it seems like it's, it's all connected. Now I'm, now I'm always going to think about, uh, Rangjung Dorje as, as a snowboarder, uh, yeah. snowboarding through Tibet. So. <laughs> Once when I went from in from from um, uh, snowboarding to to to, uh, to live in India, I was had a chat to a guy called Armton, Dogden Armton, who'd been a meditator, amazing meditator his whole life, and uh, he said I had to explain snowboarding to him, and then I got to the end of describing it in Tibetan with the snow and everything in the and then he said why. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then he's like, "Get back to me when you can do it without a board." So, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's great. So, so I think uh, maybe yeah, Ranjan Dorji could do some stuff without a board that I can't. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, well, Ruth, it was it was really great um, talking to you today, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk about your book. No, thank you. That was great fun. That was Ruth Gamble, author of Reincarnation in Tibetan Buddhism: The Third Karmapa and the Invention of a Tradition, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. You can find out about more new books in Buddhist studies and other subjects by visiting newbooksnetwork.com or by searching for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts.